Jodcast. That's no moon, or is it? With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, Samuel Lesk, Josh Hayes, Emma Alexander, Jake Stabair Morgan, Michael Wright, and Laura Dreesen. The Jodcast, March 2019 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh, and joining me in the studio today are Emma and Jake. How are you? Going along, you know. Yeah, same. Excellent. This is the exact sort of enthusiasm that we <laughs> have come to love and appreciate on the yes. Jodcast. It's been a little while since I've been in the presenter's chair. Yeah, it's it's been a while for me as well, actually. I've I've taken a break to do some actual work. Um, actual work? I, Has that been successful? No, but I've just done other not work instead. Been great. So, anyway... In the show this time, Laura Dreesen interviews Joe Callingham about his work with colliding wind binaries of massive stars, and Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, and Samuel Lesk take a look at what's happening in the March night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Michael Wright with this month's news. Hello. In the news this week, the Hayabusa 2 probe has landed on an asteroid, the Bereshit lander has liftoff, and a farewell to opportunity. Firstly, an update on the Japanese Hayabusa 2 probe, which has completed an important stage of its mission. The spacecraft was designed to return a sample of material from an asteroid called 162173 Ryugu to Earth. Now, this was a continuation of the original Hayabusa mission. It studied an asteroid called 25143 Itokawa, and one of its goals was to descend the surface and collect grains of material from an asteroid taking them back to Earth. This material was returned to Earth in 2010 and led to a large amount of interesting science, for example, details on the composition of the material, as well as learning about the effects of weathering in space. However, the original Hayabusa probe had a number of problems. One of the major things was the sample collecting mechanism developing faults, which meant that rather than collecting a lovely large amount of material, only a small amount of material was collected because it happened to go into the sampling horn when the spacecraft landed and when it was on the surface of the asteroid. This then led on to the second mission, Hayabusa 2. It was designed to do a similar job in terms of collecting material from an asteroid. The craft was launched in December 2014 reached its target in 2018, and is expected to return to Earth at roughly the end of this year. It has four small rovers with a collection of cameras, thermometers, spectrometers, and other interesting equipment, as well as the ability to again collect samples from the surface. For off-surface work, it also has remote operating equipment. It has cameras, for example, in the near and thermal infrared. On Thursday the 21st of February, the craft landed on the asteroid, and on the 22nd, a sample of material from the asteroid was collected. The way it works is this. On the craft is what's called a sampling horn, which material is collected inside. When that touches the surface, a small projectile, which is in this case 5 grams of tantalum, is fired into the surface of the asteroid, so that the horn can collect the resulting ejector. There will be two small tantalum projectiles fired into the surface, and then finally around March to April this year, a large copper projectile will be fired. This should result in some new and interesting science. As I said, the previous mission had some trouble with its sample collecting mechanism. So, when this mission works, and hopefully when the samples are returned to Earth, 
Firstly, the amount of samples should be far larger, and we'll hopefully also have a greater range of sizes with our samples. Secondly, the use of a projectile to break material off the asteroid means it's not only material from the surface being collected, but also slightly under the surface. This is especially apparent for the planned larger projectile. Next up, the Israeli-built Bereshit lander has liftoff. It's Israel's first lunar craft, designed both to take high-resolution images of the lunar surface and measure the lunar magnetic field. You see, the Earth's magnetic field is from its molten core. Next up, the Israeli-built Bereshit satellite has liftoff. The spacecraft is Israel's first lunar craft, and is designed to be able to take high-resolution images of the lunar surface, as well as measure the lunar magnetic field. You see, the Earth's magnetic field is due to its molten inside, which the Moon doesn't have. However, the Moon was likely at least partially molten in the distant past, which follows from our best ideas of how our solar system and how the objects within it were formed. When rocks solidify from this state, they retain some trace of the magnetic field that was around at the time. If Bereshit can measure these magnetic fields, and as well have a rough idea of the ages of the rocks they're being found in, we can improve our knowledge of the Moon's history. There's other interesting reasons why this lander is making the news. Firstly, how it was funded. The lander was made by an Israeli non-profit called Space IL, funded largely by philanthropists with only a small support from the Israel Space Agency. They partnered with the Israeli state-owned company Israel Aerospace Industries to build the lander. The launching was performed by one of SpaceX's Falcon 9 rockets, with NASA providing support for tracking the craft. In other words, this lander had a far larger level of private investment than previous moon missions. While the project still leaned on support of some government organisations, largely that of Israel, the idea large chunks of the development, the launch, were all performed privately. It's not quite holidays on the moon yet, but this is a very interesting thing for the future, to have a privately funded moon lander, when basically every previous lander has been done by the governments of incredibly powerful countries, the United States, Soviet Union in its time, and China. Another interesting thing that means this is making the news is the cost of the lander, which is estimated to be around $100 million. This is incredibly cheap for a lunar craft. What this does mean, though, is it's led to some interesting compromises in terms of its technology and how it works. A good example of this being the expected lifetime of the lander. The heat in the lunar day is intense. And one of the compromises is going to be that the lander has a lack of good thermal control, so it's very likely to overheat and die quite quickly. This lack of thermal control limiting its operation time. However, that is a compromise. As I said, the interesting thing about this lander is that with the compromises they've made, they can get the price down to $100 million, which is incredibly cheap for a lunar lander. Finally in the news, a farewell to Opportunity, one of NASA's Mars rovers. The rover first transmitted from Mars in 2004, and has far outlived its original goal of roughly 90 days of work. However, 
The rover fell silent after a planet-wide dust storm last June, and on Wednesday, 13th of February, NASA declared the mission completed and ended their attempts to communicate. While this is no doubt a sad moment for astronomy, with the loss of a much-loved and very useful rover, it should be remembered just how incredible it is that Opportunity was around for so long. Over its life, Opportunity has studied the geology and the atmosphere of Mars. It's largely worked on characterising the rocks and soils of the Martian surface, with a focus on whether there is evidence that water was once on the surface of Mars. In this work, Opportunity was very successful, finding many geological features that support the idea of Mars having surface water in its history. For example, patterns in the rocks of Martian surface that resemble those formed in liquid rather than wind when they're seen on Earth, and also the presence of chemicals such as sulfates in Martian rock, which on Earth are generally created in areas with standing water. But now, as I said, NASA has ceased its attempts to communicate with opportunity. And that has been the news this month. Farewell. Thanks for that, Mike. Now, in a very Aussie interview, Laura Dreesen interviews Joe Callingham about his work with colliding wind binaries of massive stars. So this is Laura interviewing Joe Callingham for the Jodcast. Joe is an astronomer, a postdoc researcher at Astron at the moment. So, Joe, how's it going? How have you been liking Manchester so far? Oh, it's been enjoyable so far. It's kind of funny as an Australian to be back in the UK. It's like a, a shade of my own country. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Netherlands is nice too, right? But I, Manchester is better. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely lovely to be here. So, what are you working on at the moment? So I'm I'm a reasonably random I think uh, researcher at the moment. Uh, so I did my PhD on how radio galaxies evolve and change. And lately, my fellowship at uh, Astron, I've been focusing pretty much uh, on stars a lot more. So particularly, I've been focusing on what's called a colliding wind binary. These are two massive stars uh, orbiting each other, and their winds are so fast and so full of mass that when they collide, they emit in X-rays and radio, so they get to super millions of degrees. Uh, Celsius at the shock front, and otherwise I've just been looking at boring old stars also in the radio, but I don't know, I don't think they're that boring. Well, yeah, I mean, when I when I was told that I was looking at stars, I was like, oh, come on, stars. <laughs> As <laughs> yeah, a pulsar person, you go, yeah. stars. Uh, I think everyone does that. Uh, I reckon yeah. it's untapped potential. You know, stars at radio frequencies, hot new field. <laughs> yep, exactly. Watch out. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming for you. <laughs> so these these colliding wind binaries, what, yeah. are you looking in both x-rays and radio at them? And what, what do you yeah. sort of find out? Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting question. So uh, the, they're one of those few objects that pretty much emit across the electromagnetic spectrum, actually. Um, they're probably the faintest in optical light, like light we see with our eyes. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, you're really, really focusing on the shock. When when these two winds that are traveling at, say, uh, millions of kilometers an hour, you know, like 3,500 kilometers a second, when they collide, they really get quite hot and emit uh, at, at X-rays. And because you've got magnetic fields, you get synchrotron emission as well. So you see it in the radio. Um, yeah, they're, they're interesting. They give us insights into how massive stars die, all kinds of fun stuff like that. So they have to be massive stars? And are they really close together or...? Yeah. So they have to be massive stars, usually. Mm. Um, so you have a few types of stars that are known to be in colliding wind binaries. So these O-type stars, they're about as much as 20 times the mass of our sun. If you get two of those together, you can get it. But uh, the ones that probably make the most spectacular colliding wind binaries, you know, the kind of top of the mountain in terms of craziness and just emission characteristics, are uh, Wolf-Rayet stars. Mm-hmm. These are stars 
that were massive stars, just like those O-type stars, but they're more evolved versions. These are stars that you consider being near the end of their lives. You know, they're in the last few percent, and uh, they're just losing mass quite rapidly. They're quite unstable. And so, yeah, so my colleagues, uh, Peter Tuthill in, in Sydney and Ben Pope in uh, in New York, uh, and myself, obviously, we found a really interesting one that uh, kind of confounded our expectations and was very pretty. So how rare are these things then? Because I can imagine... When we normally have two stars evolving together, often mm-hmm. one evolves way faster and yeah. then goes supernova and ends up with a black hole or a pulsar or something yeah. like that. That's kind of, our, I guess, our stereotypical idea mm-hmm. of a binary evolution. You have two different mass stars or even similar mass stars, but on different timescales. Mm-hmm. So how rare is it to end up with two massive stars, both at this wind stage? It's a, a, a very good question and something I've been annoying a lot of the theorists about. So... Funnily enough, often massive stars almost always appear, occur in binary pairs, you mm-hmm. know, so often they appear together. Um, and I'm not enough expert to tell you exactly the reasoning behind that, but, um, like 70, I think it's something like ridiculous, like 70% of all massive stars are actually in a binary. Mm-hmm. And then, so evolution isn't that ridiculous when you think about it in terms of like, if they're very similar masses, they can actually go to similar evolutionary stages. Not saying that's guaranteed. So how many would, so this system we found, we hypothesized likely it's actually two Wolf Array stars next to each other. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to some of these other colliding wind binaries, it's a, maybe two O type stars, which makes a lot of sense to find a lot more of those because you, a star lives its life in an O star, uh, O star type, uh, for a lot longer than a Wolf Array phase. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's the possibility of getting two Wolf Arrays together is a question I don't think we can quite know the answer to. Um, and there's a couple of, this is not the first one. There's at least one other known, um, for, for listeners that are interested, 40, uh, Wolf Array 48A is also known as a double Wolf Array. So yeah, now we're starting to get a few of these as the question is for the theorists and the evolutionary, uh, modelers is like, is this expected? You know, um, I don't know the answer to that. So are you, are you trying to look for more? What what telescope are you using? Are you using like really low frequency radio or yeah. mid range? What what? Yeah, so it was super odd. This emerged from so I'm very lucky in my position at Astron, and I only can thank them enough is that I've given a lot a lot of freedom, you know. So obviously my PhD was on this galaxy evolution stuff, but um, right at the end of my thesis, I was kind of pottering around and found something that looked like a peak spectrum source. So. For, for people that are interested, I worked on things that essentially, um, if you looked at the, the flux with frequency, instead of just getting brighter at low frequencies, they actually started to fall over and decline. And that tells us stuff about how galaxies change. And I just had a, a dumb thought. It was like, I wonder how much of this, what, what these kind of sources look like where they rise and fall. You know, they have this peak in their spectrum in the radio. I wonder what, what galactic sources show this kind of properties. And I had an interesting source long ago that was sitting in my back of my brain from, from my honors research when I was a young whippersnapper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just checked it out and I was like, wow, this kind of correlates. And so I, with Peter and Ben, we followed it up with the very large telescope in Chile and we did infrared imaging and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that really showed us that, uh, this is a spectacular image uh, that we made that are uh, in the dust. And it shows mm-hmm. this very complicated kind of Archimedean spiral, kind of like the shells of, a uh, um, the spiral of a shell, it was a phenomenal uh, picture that we made, and it kind of confounded our understanding of how these colliding wind binary physics should really apply. Okay, so then if it's got a sort of a peaked spectrum, then you probably can't look at it at the lowest frequency. Yeah, so it's not there. So the weird thing is that it's about, I don't know how, how much details we want to go into, but it goes from essentially 300 millijanskis to nothing 
uh, 300 milligenesics at 300 megahertz mm-hmm. to nothing at 150 megahertz. So okay. that's a rapid decline. Um, I, it's exponential. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's gone from something that would be very standard to observe with any telescope at 300 megahertz. Like that, that brightness is very easy to do. Mm-hmm. And then for it to disappear in that small frequency range is quite odd. Um, even more odd than any galaxy. Mm-hmm. So it just just completely drops off. Just disappears. Disappears. Mm-hmm. Nice. And do you have any other candidates for this sort of thing, or is that just kind of because you say you mm-hmm. did in your honours? For those of you yeah. who don't know, honours is like a fourth year undergraduate. So in the UK, that would be an MPhil, yeah. um, but in Australia, it's an honours. I'll trust your translation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As an Australian. Yeah, exactly. Living in the UK. He's lived overseas. <laughs> um, so so yeah, you, you just sort of. I guess happened across this object, like a lot yeah. of astronomy happens that yeah, way, yeah. where we just stumble across things. But do, so, are you looking for more, or we is are, anybody looking for yeah, more? Yeah, yeah, definitely looking for more. So, we just completed a survey of the galactic plane. So, one of my part of my thesis uh, that I didn't fully explain was producing an all sky survey with this new radio telescope in the southern hemisphere called the Murchison Whitefield Array. Now, this is a similar listeners might have heard of the thing called LOFAR. That's also in in the Netherlands. This is kind of like. The Southern Hemisphere version of this, it's not as, as expensive, so it hasn't got all the bells and whistles, but so it can't go as deep and it hasn't got as high resolution. But the big winner for the telescope is its uh, spectral coverage. It, it, an observation with that telescope means you get instantaneous coverage from 72 megahertz to 230 megahertz. That's like a, right in the FM band. And so this has to be located in the middle of nowhere, Western Australia, you know, where there's like one big toe per square kilometer of people, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, if that <laughs> gives a good vi- vision for the <laughs> listeners, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, what is it? It's a hundred people, but it's the size of the Netherlands. Yeah. I think, I think it's the, the size area. of the Netherlands. I yeah. can't remember these off the, off the top of my head, but like yeah. uh, middle of bloody nowhere, Australia, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much as isolated as you can get, which makes it really good for radio astronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I helped produce an all sky survey with that. And, uh, we're just about to release with Natasha Hurley Walker, largely leading it and Paul Hancock, and um, we're producing the galactic plane at the moment. And so there's a whole bunch of these that turn over in the galactic plane. The question is, are they extra galactic? Are they galactic? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just haven't had the time at the moment to research it because obviously I've got other interests, as I was saying early on. Yeah, so there's just a lot of future work to go for this one. It's not... No, in, not in terms of now. population studies, it is, but this is an oddball. These are the, this this colliding binary that Peter and Ben and I discovered... Um, is one of those outliers of a population that can kind of open a new way of thinking about a population. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's just got accepted in nature astronomy, so it should be out soon. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a really fun thing to work on. And to be honest, as I said, and I hope the listeners by the time they hear this can also look at the image or seen it in press releases or something, it is a, a lovely image. And this is one of the reasons I know... Obviously, I'm a scientist, I want to send questions and answers, but I'm also an astronomer, and there's something to be said about making pretty pictures. Yeah, that's a, it's always nice in radio astronomy, you often get some yeah. nice... Well, like, my pictures. PhD was looking at, at what, is this line curved yes. or straight, was pretty much my PhD. So when yeah. I make a pretty image, it was like, hmm, yes. <laughs> this is what I became an astronomer for, right? <laughs> nice. So you also said you were working on boring stars. Can you tell us about that, or is it top secret? Uh, it's not, not too much top secret. So they're boring stars in the sense that they're just solar mass stars or less. And so, again, uh, I mentioned a colleague's name, Ben Pope. He was visiting me. And uh, now at Astron, we're producing probably... Well, the deepest all-sky survey that's ever been done. And so we're achieving, we're able to go so deep now that the question was, wonder what we can see. So when you turn on, a, on when you look at the night sky with your eyes, right, everything you see is stars, 
right? Pretty much with your naked eye. There's with a few exceptions in the southern hemisphere, which is a much more beautiful sky, by the way. You can see galaxies really easily, at least two. Um, and you can kind of make out Andromeda with your eye, right? I'm yeah, showing. yeah, if you're lucky. <laughs> if you squint. Yeah, but we've got a lot of dust and stuff in the Southern Hemisphere as well that's blocking the light from the stars and the, yeah. the, the, the Milky Way. I yeah. mean, we are luckier in the Southern Hemisphere if you haven't yeah. been down Yeah, I recommend, I recommend actually going down south and seeing the sky. <laughs> this is what happens when you've got two Aussies talking on the podcast. <laughs> we it's just like brag about how nice over. the sky is. <laughs> it is. It's much prettier. There's yeah, no exactly. doubt about it. It's actually objectively true. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, when you look at the night sky with your eyes, you see stars. You're dominated by stellar emission. Even when you see a galaxy, what you're seeing is stars. Mm-hmm. When you turn on your, if I could replace your eyes with a radio antenna, mm-hmm. you're pretty much dominated by extragalactic emission, largely from, um, except obviously with the exception of the galactic plane, uh, largely from material falling onto black holes. So mm-hmm. if I just gave you a source randomly, Laura, and I said, here, here's a radio source. of the time you can say that is most likely a extragalactic source. That's a, that's a galaxy far away. You know, obviously I know you study pulsars and all that kind of fun stuff, but how many pulsars are known? 3,000. 3,000. Yeah. Yeah. We're, (laughs) this survey we just conducted is 300,000 in 400 square degrees of largely galaxies, right? There's loads more. (laughs) So there's loads more. So like, I think 99.9% of all catalog radio sources Mm -hmm. are probably extragalactic. Um, so at least 99%. Um, so the question became with this idea was that now we're going so deep, maybe we're hitting the tip of this iceberg where we can start see stars, just like the optical guys see stars. Mm-hmm. And it was just a fun little project that I thought would be, I don't know, why not have, have a little bit of a side project and an enjoyment. And this is where, uh, another astronomer called Harish, uh, turned up at Astron, uh, as a staff member. And, uh, we kind of bounced a few ideas off each other and we went down this path of studying uh, boring old stars. So the question is, what do they look like at these frequencies? They're very basic questions. I only work on basic things, you know, mm. like a very, I, I'm not a in-depth, nitty-gritty kind of guy. I'm just like, what does this look like at these frequencies, you know? Does this make sense? And so, yeah, that's what I've been working on lately. So how did you spot these things then? If you said that, you know, most of the time it's not a star, it's yeah. probably something elsewhere, yeah. then how do you... How do you find the things that how are? How you confident? Yeah. How do you yeah. go, go, okay, that one, that's mm. in our galaxy, or it's likely to be in our galaxy anyway, because, you know, we're astronomers, we know that not everything is 100% sure, but how would you you be able to differentiate, say, that's not a quasar, you know, that's at a redshift of whatever, that's actually a star in our galaxy? Yeah, that's really hard, because essentially, as I said, you know, if I gave you a, a, a radio source, you would say 99.9%, that's going to be a extragalactic source by itself. So mm-hmm. how do you assess the association with that in a star. And uh, and so essentially all I'm trying to do is convince you. The funny thing is back in the past, I know, I'm going to go on a history diatribe okay. here. Let, let's just take a tangent here. Um, the fun part was a long a long time ago when radio astronomy was first turning on, you know, when the experiments being done here in Jodrell and stuff at the University of Sydney and obviously uh, in Cambridge as well, um, they had this problem where they actually, everyone thought these radio sources were stars. And they had to spend all this time showing that majority of these radio sources are actually extragalactic. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 60, problem. 70 years later, it's the reverse problem mm-hmm. where I'm like, everyone's like, everything's extragalactic. I have to do this reverse problem of convincing people it's a star. Yeah. Um, so the, the uh, answer is, is a few things. So obviously what you need is a cross match. So when mm-hmm. I look in my optical catalogs and my radio catalogs, I need the position of the star and the radio source to line up. Mm-hmm. Right, but that doesn't guarantee anything because there's lots of stars and there's lots of radio galaxies, and so the accuracy of how well you know the position of your radio source 
is quite poor relatively to the accuracy, I mean, the density of, of stars in the sky. Mm-hmm. So in terminology to stat speak, you tend to be dominated by false positives, right? If I just throw a billion stars at the sky and then I throw 300,000 radio sources with a largest error circle, the chances of them just by chance lining up is quite high. Yeah. So you can't just do it on that. So the next thing you do is the type of emission characteristics you expect from a star. And so stars are known to be variable emission. So from from particularly stars like M dwarfs, which are much smaller than our sun, these are kind of red stars. They tend to show these flares, and so they turn on and off. You know, so variability is one way of doing that. And unlike extra galactic sources at these low frequencies, remember we're talking about FM frequency bands. Um, so like what you turn turn your radio on in your car to listen to to listen to some DJ. Um, yeah, it sounds super old. Then. Yeah, yes. some DJ. Those kids, <laughs> listen you know. to music. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, you yeah. So you expect variability not from AGN, but you do from these stars. Mm-hmm. And then the final one, which is a little bit more complicated, is polarization. So the way the light is emitted from the emission characteristics uh, from stars tend to be what's called circularly polarized, and so. I know listeners are probably familiar with polarized glasses, you know, so you have reflection from surface. That just means the light is kind of preferentially preferentially emitted in a certain direction. Um, so we just kind of look for what's called circular polarization, which is unique to stars generally, very especially high polarization fraction, um, circularly polarized. Awesome. So have you found anything interesting? So we've got our first detection, which is exciting. That's so cool. this is an oddball. So there's only been one other detection of these low frequencies of a of a star, and this is a well-known star called UV SETI. This is a group um, coming out of Sydney and Perth, and uh, in, in Australia, obviously. Um, and uh, this one's an oddball. It's kind of throwing our, our uh, ideas out the door about how emissions really emerge from these stars. Now, so most stars we've seen in the radio are really like basic normal. And what I would, the astronomers speak, non-degenerate, i.e. they're not neutron stars, they're not white dwarfs, mm-hmm. they're just stars like our yeah. sun, right? They're just burning hydrogen to helium in the core. Uh, the majority of these emissions come from very magnetically, magnetically active stars, so they tend to be rapidly rotating, as opposed to our sun that rotates quite slowly over... All right, what's the period of rotation of the sun again? Like, I, don't, I don't know, but the sun doesn't really do that much. We still have flares and things, of course, like people have probably heard about mm. solar flares and um, making the aurora and yep. things like that, but they're not crazy powerful, are they? No, not from the sun, relatively. Yeah. And so these things are quite powerful, and so they're rapidly rotating. So I mean, like, they rotate on day scale, mm-hmm. um, and they... They're very X-ray bright, even quiescently. So outside of a flare, they're quite easy to see in the X-rays. Mm-hmm. And so this this star and and the flares that come from these things, while they definitely have a distribution, they tend to be short. You know, like a flare from a, a star like this tend to last twenty minutes or maybe even an hour, but mm-hmm. they're quite rare to go longer than that. Um, there's been a few exceptions, but it's it's reasonably rare. Um, so the star we found is an oddball in all these characteristics. Okay, it's an M-type star, but it's a very slow rotator. It rotates at least a 130-day period, you know. So, whoa, that's odd. You know, when a classic one, I'll just throw a name out there called AD Leo, rotates on like a two-day timescale, you know. So we're talking yeah. about 130 compared to two. And it's also not seen in the X-rays. Even though it's been observed with some of the X-ray telescopes, it's uh, not detected. So it's at least two orders of magnitude uh, fainter in uh, in X-rays than AD Leo or UV SETI, these other well-known radio-emitting stars. So, um, how do we make sense of this? So, the mission is also weird. The the emission we get from this star uh, goes for eight hours, you know, pretty much on, mm-hmm. you know, the whole time. It doesn't show, like, a sharp drop. 
we, we can see it go for eight hours and it's uh, what, what we call broadband. Often a lot of these flares show very sharp frequency uh, structure. You know, so for example, it'll just drop off after say, I don't know, let's say 200 megahertz and it just it's not seen anymore. Uh, this just is on for the whole band of, uh, of lo-fi. So it lasts for the, the flare itself lasts yeah. for way longer, like yeah. a few times longer than yeah. we ever expected. To well, see. not commonly expected, yeah. yeah. So the, the question then becomes: Is this a rare event, or is this emission from other body? Mm-hmm. We're very, we're, we're, this is totally preliminary work, and so we're still trying to understand mm-hmm. what's going on. And I guess most of the mechanisms that we know about, we'd expect it to be the shorter, the shorter flares that we see yes. now, the dynamo models and things like yeah. that of of stars. This yeah. rotation that you talked about. Yes. So, yeah, that's a, the difficult part of it, actually. And and the question then becomes, if we just got lucky here with the type of star? Because, like, before this time, no one ever went this deep in an all-sky field of view, mm-hmm. you know? And so these things are reasonably rare to see a flare from this type of star. You know, if I wrote to the for, to, to a very large array, like a, a very famous radio telescope in America, uh, say, let's say 10 years ago, and I said, I want to stare at this random M-dwarf, that's not known to rapidly rotate and it has no shown characteristics. And I want to look at it for 12 hours or more. You know, I want to occupy this uh, Premier Institute for, for a long time. That The TAC would probably go, no way, yeah, Jose. You, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you're not going to waste our time like that. Yeah. And so maybe our selection criteria, all the previous radio searches have been mm-hmm. heavily biased. Yeah. You know, so maybe this happens all the time. You know, maybe there is a giant flare from an M-Star that lasts eight hours. You know, and we just have a bad selection window with this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we really need to understand that. And that's what I've been working on for a moment. And this got me excited. So I've been initiating a population study more along these lines with, obviously, Tim Chimwell and Harish from uh, from uh, Astro. Nice. That sounds really cool. And you're looking for more of these kind of objects and that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, more of these kind of there. objects and all that kind of fun stuff, yeah. Yep. So, I don't know. The holy grail in this field, obviously, is that the emission isn't coming from the star at all. It's actually coming from our, a companion. So... We see this often in the solar system, you know, so you have a Jupiter uh, and you have a moon right near it called Io and you have this kind of interaction that causes emission quite bright at low frequencies um, from from material, from Io passing through the magnetic field of Jupiter and you get this aurora that actually comes. Mm-hmm. That's quite bright in the radio, just like aurora you see in... Uh, uh, in the, in, in the northern and southern hemisphere. I think we say aurora really badly with our accent, by the way. Aurora, yeah. Aurora. You know, like, wow. How, how else do you say? <laughs> I don't know, but I feel like other people say it so much nicer. Yeah, that's true. I feel true. like we have very harsh yeah. R's and A's. Yeah, it's like, true. It just, just sort of merges all into one swoosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We apologize for that. We can't help our accents. Yeah, that's right. And I'm we sure actually that think they're pretty grating. great. Yeah. <laughs> that's we, we, grating on your ears, aurora. <laughs> we think our accents are pretty great. So, I mean, not, we're not going to change. <laughs> anyway so so yeah so you're thinking that maybe like just as a as an idea it could be coming from some sort of yeah linked system between two objects rather than just the the star itself yeah that's uh, well that's possible one explanation but uh we still have a lot more work to do and mm-hmm. i understand that but that would be exciting that yeah, sounds really cool, cool. we're yeah. excited to see more about that then yeah fingers crossed all right, awesome. We might have to wrap up there, yes. Joe. So thanks for that. That sounds really cool. We'll keep an eye out for that Nature Astronomy yep. um, paper and the, the press Quite release articles. Yeah. We'll hopefully be able to include some links yeah. um, in on the Jodcast website for that so that you, you all can uh, have a bit of a read and keep an eye out for Flare Star stuff from Joe as well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Laura, and I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for being here, Joe. All right, bye-bye. See ya. Thanks for that, Laura. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So, Josh, what have you got for us this month? I might have an exomoon for you. And then again, I might not. 
There was, if you remember back in October 2018, last year... Um, only a few months ago. Only a few months ago, but it feels like so much longer. So yeah, much has I know happened. we talked about this at some point in the past, but I couldn't place yeah. it. We have more news on this potential exomoon. So for those that can't remember, in October 2018, there was a paper that was published and it sparked a load of news articles saying that an exomoon, so this is a, a moon that goes around a, an exoplanet, so a planet that goes around a star that isn't the sun, had been found. That in and of itself would have been really cool and like a big discovery. But what was so strange about it was that the, the proposed moon-planet system was, rather than a sort of Earth-type planet with our Earth-type moon, it was a Jupiter-sized planet with a Neptune-sized moon, which is something that has never been talked about or even theorised really before now. And so there's been a paper that's come out last week, so last week of February, and it's kind of exploring whether or not this is really there. So what I thought I'd do for my odd and ended is, is I'd take you through this little story because it's it's quite it's quite an interesting look at how science itself actually works with sort of development of ideas and papers being published back and forth between primarily two parties, both of whom are experts in exomoons and clearly want the first discovery. There's a bit of politics at play here as well, so we've got a little saga going on. So I'm going to take you back to the top level thing. So what is a moon? Generally things that we call moons, are 0.2 to 0.4 Earth radii across. They're about the size of, think, our moon. These are known as Galilean moons, mostly because they are similar to the four Galilean moons of Jupiter. We, as scientists, we're interested in them for a number of reasons, because they give insight to uh, how your planets form, and they can be potential hosts for life. So there's theories of Titan, I think, and Enceladus being hosts for life in our solar system. They can form in three ways. They can either form with the planets uh, from like an accretion disk, or they can form from an impact. So the Earth's moon is thought to be an impact between Earth and a Mars-sized object, and then it span out a load of dust rock, which form the moon, or they can capture them, so through gravitational forces. That's, that's our current understanding of moons. And then back in 2017, there was a, a group of people at Columbia, so Alex Tichy, David Kipping, and a guy called Schmidt, published a paper talking about why we don't see moons. They were going through the Kepler data and were trying to see if there was any indication that there might be exomoons in there. So exomoons are very, very hard to see because with Kepler they're using the transit method and moons, as we think we understand them, are very small. So transits are hard. What's the transit method, The Josh? transit method is basically a rock goes in front of star and blocks out some light and you can see that light being blocked out. To compare to... And uh, something that you might be able to hold in your head. If you put a car headlamp about 50 miles away and then try to see a gnat fly in front of it, that's what we're looking at. So instead of a gnat, you're looking at a grain of dust several thousand times smaller. So did Kepler have the sensitivity to potentially see these things? Not Galilean moons, which is why partly they didn't see any. Um, So it's a selection effect. It's a selection effect, definitely. But what Teacher Kipping and Schmidt did actually find was one planet where they saw potentially a, a sort of secondary transit that they could attribute to a moon, or they thought they might be able to. This was Kepler-1625b. They published this paper and went, we're going to use Hubble, come back to us in a year's time. At that point, everyone kind of went, hmm, cool. And then a guy called René Heller, who works at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, produced a paper about a month later, basically looking at what could this be. So in in the original paper, the T.G. Kipping-Schmidt paper, they 
sort of they didn't really say very much other than this is a Jupiter-sized planet with a Neptune-sized moon. That was all the information they gave. They gave no numbers or anything. I understand that they would be hesitant about assigning anything too significant to this too quickly. Yeah, but like, I don't know. That sounds sketchy. When you say Neptune-sized, Jupiter-sized, that kind of thing, mm. do you mean in terms of radius, mass or radius? radius? Okay, um, cool. In terms of mass, and so this is what Heller did. He took the light curves and the fits that Teacher Kipping Schmidt had produced and actually tried to assign values to them, like extract from their data. And from that, he tried to work out, like, what could these bodies be? So you can get from a transit, you can get radius information, but you can't really get very much mass info because you're looking at how big an object is and how much light it's blocking out. Yeah, so he got radius information out and found he agreed with with the original paper this is a 1.1 jupiter radius planet potentially with a neptune radius moon but is it a planet that was the question that he wanted to ask because such a system's never been seen before it's really something new and scientists were always a bit hesitant when we see something unexpected he, he used a thing called a mass radius relation which is just if you've got something of a certain radius what mass could it be and finds that the the host planet could either be pretty much be anything from a gas planet to a very low mass star. So those were all possible outcomes. Those were all model, those were all pretty much possible outcomes. An object of this radius. For an object of that radius, there's a very very small band about halfway through where it can't be, but it could be basically a gas planet, a brown dwarf, or a very low mass star. So how would we distinguish between those? Through follow up observations, which is what we're waiting, or at this point in time. In our story, we're waiting on T.G. Kipping-Schmidt to come back with the Hubble observations. Oh, okay. So he, he then looks at the, the moon and does the same analysis and finds that it could be anything between an Earth or a Neptune-sized moon. And then talks a little bit, he, he looks at, could this, could this possibly exist? And he, he concludes, maybe our formation methods have never been tested out to this far. But it, the simulations say that it could maybe be something that's consistent with accretion. So you could form it like that. And if you, if you were to try and capture it, so let's say it's a Jupiter-Neptune and you've got a, a system where you've got a Jupiter and a Neptune that comes in and then the Jupiter captures the Neptune. As part of that, when you capture something, when an object's captured, something else, like mass, has to be ejected from the system. And you're still looking at a mini-Neptune super-Earth-sized mass that has to be kicked out. So again, the question rises of where does that come from? It looks like accretion might be the answer, but we don't really know. And then it was all silent for a year. No one said anything. And then Alex Tucci and David Kipping came back with their Hubble observations. So this is now October last year. They came out with some really nice light curves, which if you look up the papers you can find. But basically they they saw two things. They saw a transit timing variation that the transit of the main planet occurred at the 77 minutes early. And that can either be due to a moon or another planet in the system. And... We only have four transits, so we don't know if there's a second planet. We can't do that yet. But they also saw a uh, transit dip due to potentially another object, which they put down to being a moon. We can't say explicitly that this second object is associated with this existing planet. No, we can't. Maybe there's another transiting planet. Maybe there is another transiting planet. They claim that they they claimed at the time that they'd done loads of different models, so planet, moon, planet, other planet, but that you would see that other transiting planet periodically as well. But they claim that their moon, their planet, moon model fits better than anything else. Is there any point at which you go from being a planet 
and a big moon to just it being a binary planet system? Is that such a thing that has been theorised? Because, I mean, for example, I know our moon is actually quite large in terms of its relative size to Earth. Yeah, it is. At what point do you get the ratio between the size of a planet and the size of a moon? At what point is it... I like like Pluto and, and Sharon, for instance, you know, with well, obviously Pluto is a dwarf planet, but that is an even smaller ratio. S- similar. It, they, yeah, they're, they're even more similar in size. And at that point, it, does that then become a binary system? Do you say it's a binary planet as opposed to a planet and a moon? Or is it still always the smallest object is a moon? Or is this something that's not really been discussed That yet? That is an excellent question and one that came out of this discovery or the, this discovery itself. And no one really knows. Binary planets aren't a thing. No, um, or at least not at the moment. Uh, so if it is binary, this is it's uncharted territory. That's what I find so exciting about this is because it's a system that we've not seen any sign of before. But if you go back 10 years to before Kepler was launched, we didn't know hot Jupiters were a thing. And now suddenly... We knew about hot Jupiters before Kepler. Well, but on the, the number of systems in which they exist... Kepler and has basically gone, okay, these are common. I mean, Kepler basically took us from, here's one exoplanetary system, here's another system, here's one more, to here is a sample of systems yeah. From, yeah. from the gist I get from it, right? Yeah, it's taken us to a really exciting place, and you can listen to our eulogy for Kepler in one of our previous episodes. But, yeah, just swinging back to this potential exomoon, Tishi and Kipping actually assign numbers this time, so they, they say that this is a Jupiter-sized planet, Neptune-Uranus mass moon which is massive and then they sort of hedge their bets a bit but then all of the media jump on it and we get bbc science space.com i have i have made my feelings on this particular subject known before (laughs) but yeah all of these jump on it and then last week a paper from renee heller came and a few other collaborators this time came out again so this is for context kipping and teachy are a group who work on exomoons and then Renee Heller is an, another expert on exomoons and it, this this whole paper debate feels a little bit sort of political between them where they're, Renee Heller seems to be trying to undermine what's been found which I think is really good um, in terms of science because it means that yes there are vested interests but it means that any arguments that teaching kipping are not putting forward because obviously they want this to be real. Yeah. Um, you have to put these things forwards with the expectation and the hope that they will be scrutinised. Yeah, no, I absolutely. Mean, that's, that's the whole peer review process for papers, right? In exactly. That, you know, whenever you want to publish in research, it has to go through other researchers that weren't involved in the study beforehand because your your work needs to hold up to other exactly. standards. So it has to be reproducible. Yeah. Yeah. This paper basically says, in short, it says, okay, so between your original finding with Kepler and now your your announcement with Hubble, the software has changed for Kepler analysis and they redo it with a new one, the new updated software, and the original signals disappear. Oh. Whoopsie doodle. They they really do kind of vanish. I mean, how, um, how strong was the original the, signal in terms... Because usually, I mean, it depends on exactly what you're looking for, but usually you're looking for a certain level of the signal-to-noise ratio, right? How much is your signal so above the noise level? they... They claim that the original model fitted to a signal-to-noise of 19. That's quite significant. Yes. So what might have happened with this pipeline? Because my initial reaction to hearing that was either the old version is bugged and they fixed it, (laughs) or they accidentally introduced a new bug in this version of the pipeline. I don't know. Or maybe they're both wrong in different ways. Yeah, to be honest. Programming can do wonderful things like that. 
I, I, I feel like that's probably more likely. Heller, Rodenbeck, and Bruno, they, they then take these, this new data and reanalyze everything. And they, they say that basically, yes, your best model is still the, the planet, moon, star system, but it's so out there in terms of every, every other model that they fit has very similar characteristics to everything except a planet, moon, star system. Everything has to be aligned so carefully, otherwise it doesn't work. And so they they argue that there could well be a, a second planet that's really, really close in that doesn't transit. So it's just out of the plane, so we don't see it in the Kepler data. But it's there, and that's what's causing the TTVs, and that the signals that they claim are there from the transits of the Moon are just ghosts in the data that disappear when you reanalyze them properly. Do we know what kind of period this inner planet would have to have? I don't know about the period of the inner planet, but the problem is that the period of the outer planet is about 250 days. Mm. So we're, it's very, very di- It's why we only have three transits, because Kepler only lasted for about four years in its original... Yeah, plus this one that we've got from Hubble. Yes. That leads on to my question of where do they go from here? Do they have any suggestions for their future work or where they might want to take this into the future to either confirm or refute this? Basically, to say that there is no inner planet, you need radial velocity measurements, and we just don't have those of this star. We can't really get them very easily right now. So either you need RV measurements or you need more transits. But the problem is that you can't get the transits from the ground because the transit itself is so long that it takes about two days. So the Earth rotates and you only see like half the transit, basically. So you need a space-based observatory. But the system, the star itself, is so is faint in optical, which means that all of our existing space telescopes, with the exception of Hubble... What kind of magnitude are we talking? 14, 15, I think. Yeah, that's, um, that's pushing it. Yeah, it's right on the edge of the Kepler sensitivity as well. So it's maybe not something we could give to Harps. Picked up by Gaia? So, they, I know Gaia's been doing a lot of work with precise yeah. precisions of stars. So for the precise precisions, if you have the inner planet is almost like face on in its orbit, you might be able to get it through astrometry. But if it's anything other than about 90 degrees inclination, you won't see it in the Gaia data. (laughs) So basically, we can't use TESS, Chaos or Plato because they're all optical. So we need to wait for, you guessed it, JWST. Schedule to launch, two years time. Yep. I hope Um, the listeners can sense the double thumbs up that I'm doing (laughs) to go with that. At this point, everyone sit back a bit on the, we found an exomoon, we found a new type of light system. But... Personally, I think on balance, I like having read the papers. I am inclined to agree that there's something there. Is that just wishful thinking, though? Yeah, that's the that's the problem. Yeah. I, without more data, it's impossible to say. But I think that's a really, I, I think that's a really cool story that takes us to this is how science works. And now we just have yeah. to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. Are they, are, they, are they planning more Hubble observations for? Was it 250 odds? Hubble uh, is very very difficult to get time on, and I don't know if they've actually got time for more observations right. on it. If they did, they probably wouldn't say either because of yes, rivalries. Very much. But yeah, uh, Emma, you have something to tell us about with LOFAR. So yes, we're moving from potentially is this a thing there, is it not, to moving over to radio astronomy, where I can say, we have found 300,000 new galaxies. 
Sorry, 300,000. Yes. So I'm talking, I'll, I'll take this back a little bit. I'm talking about the LOFAR 2 meter sky survey, or LOTS. So LOFAR is the low frequency array. So this is looking at really, really low frequencies in radio astronomy. So about uh, of order 10 to 240 megahertz is, is the frequency coverage. So these are these are meter long radio wavelengths that are being picked up by LOFAR. And it's run by the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy, known as Astron. And it has a core, a uh, set of stations in the Netherlands, but it does have other stations that branch out across Europe, including one in the UK in Chilbolton, which the Jodcast team did visit in 2012, and that video is still on the website if you'd like a blast from the past. I think that's the last piece of video content that that generation was able to put out. We should revive videos. Yeah, but it's the question of getting the time and the resources together to do them. Video editing takes up a lot of time. Let us know if you'd like to just see whatever it is we're doing. In... Time-lapse of PhD students sits at a desk for eight hours. <laughs> well, no, we, we, we can throw up a webcam and just not... Hey, listeners, would you like some low-quality video footage of, of the episodes that you're currently listening to anyway? The low-quality Jodcam. Yeah, I like Jodcam, I like that. So, with LOFAR, because it has a series of stations all across Europe... You can use radio interferometry basically to combine the signals from all of those, from all of the stations together, and that means that you can get really good resolution. And obviously, the more antennas that you have trying to pick up this radio signal, the better sensitivity that you have. So, one of the things that LOFAR has been doing is a survey of the northern sky. And recently, they have released a whole host of data uh, and a ton of scientific papers to, to go alongside it. So there's a special issue of the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics that has 26 papers describing this survey. And as I mentioned, they have detected thousands of previously undetected galaxies. And the team consists of more than 200 astronomers from 18 countries. So this is quite a significant data release in the low-frequency radio astronomy world. So are people here at Manchester represented in this batch of papers that have been put out? Yeah, so some of the authors on these papers include broadcaster Alex Clark. Our hero of this year's Panto. We've got other Manchester authors on there, including Mike Garrett, who is our boss. He is the big boss of JBCA. And we've also got Neil Jackson, Rob Bezak. So yeah, these 26 papers cover a whole host of different topics, just from pure survey, here are the locations of all these new objects, to probing things such as magnetic fields, which is something that I've been particularly interested in reading about. There's the first detection of radio recombination lines at cosmological distances. So these are spectral lines that you can see, which are to do with transitions in uh, in molecules or atoms. And we see them a lot in our own galaxy, but we've not really detected them that far out before. So this is the first detection of radio recombination lines at cosmological distances. But yeah, I mean, the thing that really gets me the most is just the the amount of new objects that we have discovered. And this is only the first 2% of the data. What? Yeah. So they aim, so LOFAR aims to cover the whole of the northern sky, uh, basically what it can observe well. And this, this data release is from 2% of this sky survey. And they have found 300,000 objects in the sky. They reckon with the full survey, they could find up to 15 million. That's insane. Yeah. That is a lot of stuff up there that we just did not know about. Why have we not seen them before? Basically because they've been too faint. LOFAR is currently the most sensitive low-frequency instrument that we have. So we've got the, the square kilometre array hopefully coming up in a few years. We've talked a lot about that before. As it stands, LOFAR is currently our most sensitive low-frequency instrument. So when we're talking about objects that are you know, a bit fainter, or if they're just further away, then 
we need to get down to sensitivities where we can observe them and, and low far is so how how far away are these when you say they're a bit further away so the furthest object that has been discovered is 26 billion light years away a radio galaxy 26 billion light years away what is that in terms of Redshift? Redshift. Like how, how... I don't know off the top of my head, but I know that it's taken the light 12 billion years to reach us. In, in the time that it's taken for the light to reach us, obviously there has been that expansion. I don't, I don't know it in terms of the redshift off the top of my head. Right, but it's looking yeah. back to the universe as it was 12 billion years ago. Relatively early on in the universe's yeah. lifetime. Well, I mean, the universe is 13 billion and a bit years old, right? Yeah, yeah so mm. it's so far away now. So what, what science can you do with that? So a lot of the science that we're looking at is to do with black holes. So the objects that we're primarily seeing in the radio sky, as I was saying, radio galaxies, so these are galaxies that are bright in the radio part of the spectrum. And the reason that they're bright is because they have a supermassive black hole at the core of their galaxy and they're emitting really energetic jets of emission. Galaxies that are closer in, we can see that radio emission as beautiful jets and lobes, and that's something that I study for my own PhD project. But when you get further away and they become just like point sources, and actually if you looked up at the sky and our eyes could see radio, it wouldn't actually seem that much different, well, other than maybe a few big objects, it wouldn't seem that much different from an optical sky. But instead of the little pinpricks of light that you could see point sources being stars, the majority of them that you see in the radio sky are galaxies. Most radio sources that we see in the radio sky are other galaxies. Wow. Okay. Are these new objects generally radio loud or radio quiet? Or is there a mix? Well, as in, are they bright objects that are far away or are they faint objects that are closer to there's, us? There's a mix, there's a mix. As I said, um, there are some that are really, really far away that we've seen, but we've also observed things that are closer by as well. So this is basically encapsulating a lot of the objects that haven't been discovered so far that have just been because they're too faint. And like I said, sometimes that's because they've been too too far away. Sometimes it's because they are a bit more radio quiet. So this this survey, as I said, it's only actually 2% of, of the full survey. Uh, it's covering 424 square degrees. And it's actually looking roughly in the location of the plough, that, that bit of the constellation of Ursa Major. Yeah, so this is uh, looking in a very familiar direction, I guess, to many astronomers. And the resolution that it has is six arc seconds. So this is basically about 300 times smaller than the size of the full moon, roughly speaking. So that's that's how much resolution that we have to, to see these objects with. So what's happening with LOFAR now? You've mentioned that this is only 2% of the whole sky. So they have got a little bit more data. I think they have 20% of actually this data for this survey taken. This survey's got to compete with other LOFAR projects. You know, an all-sky survey is, is only one of the many things that LOFAR does. Is there no opportunity for commensal work with that? Possibly, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd imagine there would be. I don't know much about the day-to-day workings of LOFAR and its observations, but I know like, there are people that look for transients with LOFAR, there are people looking at the sun with LOFAR, there's, there's all sorts of stuff, and uh, I think you know, some of the data might be good for multiple things. But in general, I think if you're wanting to look at a specific thing at a certain frequency, for example, with a certain number of stations, and that determines your resolution, that kind of thing. Is there anything, any any theories in there that you're hoping will be confirmed? Or I mean, per- personally, one of the studies that I find most interesting is one that probes the intergalactic magnetic field. So they've been looking at a giant radio galaxy. So this is a, a galaxy that would look pretty huge on the sky compared to other radio galaxies. And so we basically get these two massive lobes coming off. As I mentioned, there's this jets coming off the central black hole and you can map out the the Faraday rotation 
on these lobes. So the Faraday rotation is an effect that happens when a polarised light wave passes through a magnetic field or a magnetoionic area of space. So by looking at the way a polarised radio wave behaves, you can then determine some things about the magnetic field. So sometimes that's locally near the object where this emission is coming from, sometimes it's the bit in the middle. And this particular study has been looking at the bit in the middle, so looking at the magnetic fields in between galaxies. Because magnetic fields are everywhere. Is there anywhere that they're not? As far as I know, they are pretty much ubiquitous throughout the universe. On on very large scales, you know, you get scales of, you know, galaxy clusters, you see magnetic fields in between them. And everyone dismisses them. Yeah. It's really sad. So, Jake, what have you brought for us? Well, this is getting to be a bad habit for me. Whenever I'm in the presenting chair, I tend to bring along a little bit of a rant. And today is no exception, unfortunately. Let's... What's it on this time? We need to have a frank conversation about publishing. Yeah. How academic articles are published and how the model works. Because I've been going through this process myself. I've got my... First paper is currently being held by the referee for various reasons. It's been that way for about a year now, but that's not related to what I'm going to talk about today. That's just part of the process. So I was talking to my partner about this, and one of the issues that we've had in this process is keeping the paper within a reasonable length. It's grown quite a bit in scope with the improvements that the referee has requested that we make to this thing. And it's now grown to 20 pages. And the issue we've had is that if we go over to 21 pages, the journal that we're submitting to will charge us 50 quid extra a page. That seems excessive. Everything about academic publishing is excessive, right? So, So, so I was talking to her about this, and as a non-astronomer, her immediate reaction was, wait, You have to pay the publisher to get your work out there. Surely it should be the other way around. And so this has coincided quite nicely with a blog post that I've seen a little while back. So I mentioned before on the show, I follow the blog of Professor Peter Coles, who is currently at Maynooth University, and he runs a blog called In the Dark, where he talks about a bunch of stuff, astronomy, cricket, beards. He has a nice beard. He's won an award for his beard. I, I'm very envious. That's a little bit of trivia. So he has been involved recently in setting up a new journal called the Open Journal of Astrophysics with several backers, including Chris Lintop, who is a friend of the Jodcast. We've had him on the show several times. And they have been accepting their first publications. And one of these first publications has been by a Finnish astronomer by the name of Siski Resonet of the University of Helsingborg, or Helsinki, as that anglicises. And so they have written a guest post about the state of play with publishing as it is currently and where it might need to go in the future. And so they've opened this by saying, the bad news is the scientific community can no longer afford commercial scientific journals. But the good news is that the scientific community no longer needs to afford commercial scientific journals. And as to why that is, why they say that we don't need science journals anymore. So let's consider the funding model that we as researchers are as part of here. So we do our research here at the university. We are paid by the university. And I believe all three of us here are on STFC grants. I am funded directly from the uni, but... So yeah, well, the bottom line is it is funded by the taxpayer. 
at yes. this stage to do our research and not by the publisher. We write up our research, again, that's on that's here at the uni, on time funded by the taxpayer. That research is then peer-reviewed by one or more referees. And they have to take time out of their days when they could be other doing doing other things, other research. And they don't get paid for reviewing No, either. they do not. That's another thing the publishing house gets for free. Once the paper is accepted, it ha- then has to be edited. Sometimes these editors are paid, sometimes they are not. And the particular journal we are currently submitting to, because Josh is also an author on this paper... I am, but it is primarily Jake's work. Um, You're part of the group. Yeah, part, part of the ship, part of the crew, part of the author list. Yeah, so we are submitting to the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, Munras, and to their credit, they do pay their editors. That is a full-time position. So that is a legitimate expense on their behalf. And then, once this thing is eventually published, the real kicker is we then have to pay the society again to be able to see the work that we have done. The concept of paying someone to put your paper in a journal and then paying them again to see your own paper is insane. Imagine if a newspaper pulled this kind of trick. Just pick a newspaper, whichever one you like. Imagine if tomorrow the boss said to all of their journalists, you're fired. But if you're really, really good, you can keep publishing in the paper. But it's going to cost you 10 grand a year for the privilege. In astronomy, we actually have it better than a lot of other sciences as well, because we have very good access to papers for free on the archive. So in general, I'd say most astronomy papers do get published on the archive, which is easily it's free to access by anyone. And so you can access papers there without having to pay the journal fee. But... Some some journals don't necessarily allow this or allow it to, to go up at the same time as it is published in their journal. And for a lot of fields, they, they don't have the equivalent of the archive yeah. um, or they're, they're only just being set up. For, the, for any, any of our listeners that haven't come across archive before, it's um, arxiv.org because we're irritating and the X is actually a chi. The archive actually predates the World Wide Web. Hmm. Does this actually? Set up in 1991. I did not know that. How did it work before the World Wide Web? It was through emails, which, again, were also in their infancy at the time. Ah. It predates us as well, then. Yeah, so back then, in the dim distant past, people used to email each other. But, of course, because data storage was a lot smaller back then, people's mailboxes would fill up very, very quickly from all of these papers that people were sending to each other. Was it like unsolicited papers? Did you ever? Did they get read my paper? Read my paper. They just send it to everyone. It's like, oh, this person's emailed me a paper. Again. I imagine Delete. some of them probably were unsolicited, <laughs> but I imagine there was probably a lot of useful, genuine communication in there mm. as well. So it was realised that there would have to be a centralised resource to not only store but distribute these works. Mm. And so, twenty-eight years later, here we are. So that explains why its interface is so. Feels like it's out of the 90s. It literally is. Yes. So yeah, but you raise a fantastic point, and the archive is a fantastic resource, and I do urge you all to go and check it out and read it if you haven't already. It's something that we're supposed to do every day as PhD students. I've got an email folder full of unread emails from them. It's fine. I love catching up on the archive. It's a productive use of my time reading yeah. through them for 10 minutes every day. I read them occasionally. I read them this morning. I read, I read them every day. Like I said, it's a productive, a regularly productive thing that I do with my day. Oh. See, I actually go to the website and go to AstroPH. So, the fact that the archive exists is a central plank of Resonance Argument going forwards from this. 
And so another thing we have to talk about this point is money. We have to talk about money. I have a little guessing game for you both here. So let's take Munras as an example, just because it's been brought up. Let's say you are the library chair of the Institute for Studies and you want a yearly subscription to Munras. How much do you reckon that would set you back? So if I, I am the person in charge of Manchester University and want a subscription yes. for the so university... So the students and faculty can access the print version oh. of the journal millions. and the online I'm stuff. I'm guessing millions. I, like, I'm going to go with 1.4 million and three pence. It's not quite that bad. So for... This individual journal, it's seven grand we're looking at. Oh, okay. okay yeah. That's we, we, were, we were far too pessimistic. <laughs> no, but when you consider that's just one journal, mm. you've also got a subscription fee for APJ, for ANA, for PASP, for Nature, for Science, and that's just for astrophysics. Not getting into all of the other stuff, all of the other research in all of the other different disciplines that's done here at the university. Uh, do you have a figure for how much it costs an institution generally? Like, do you know how much the University of Manchester spend on? I don't know, but I do have a figure for a few years back from Harvard okay. that this post cites. So in 2012, their library's yearly bill for journal and publication subscriptions was three and a half million US dollars. See, I said millions, said yep. millions. Yeah. There we go. So not for individual journals, but mm. when you add them all together, you Three get and them. a half million? Yeah. That's insane. That is a lot. Back in 2012, Harvard actually took the step of asking their faculty to resign from the editorial boards of any and all publications that kept their work exclusively behind paywalls. Oh, because that's... they recognised at the time this couldn't continue. And so they, very bravely in my view took that step to vote with their feet because they had the power to be able to do so. Did that have an effect? As far as I can tell, no. I mean, <laughs> Harvard has clout, but it is still only one of thousands of universities around the world. So there needs to be a step change in the field to how, make this happen. How do we do that, though? How do we make the academic people rise up and cast off the shackles of their uh, publishing oppressors? So consider at this point, what do we need... Journals for? What functions do they serve? Back before the internet existed, journals were critical for getting research out there into the world and publishing it because obviously we didn't have the archive back then that we could just go to. You actually had to get paper copies distributed if you wanted people to see what you've done. And out at Jodrell Bank, that still has a lovely library out there, full from floor to ceiling of previous copies of journals, previous volumes that have been put out. So the problem in this case isn't one of open access or storage because that problem was solved by archive back in 1991. So there is no reason why journals should continue to be gatekeepers in this manner. So why we do still need them is peer review because with archive, anyone could submit to the archive. It is moderated to an extent but there is no peer review process there. For your unmoderated open access things, go to Vixra. Yes. Which is archived backwards. Yes. So yeah, so if you want to see some interesting material, you can go and check that out instead. So if if there was a way to have an open access... So is, is this new open access journal basically archived, but with added peer review? It's peer review built onto archive, if that makes sense. So this is where we loop back to the Open Journal of Astrophysics, which is an overlay journal. 
So what would happen is we would submit our paper to archive as normal. That would then be picked up by one or more reviewers at this overlay journal. They would then peer review it as normal. And if it's accepted, we can then update the copy that we've put on archive with the fact that it's been refereed by this journal and it's got a digital object identifier attached to it. And that's really all that needs to happen. At this point, it's now vetted. It's out there in the public domain. The so, traditional publishing house has been bypassed completely. So at that point, we've paid nothing and the taxpayer has access to the research that they generally have funded. Yes, because if you're listening, taxpayers, this is, of course, your research at the end of the day. We are paid by you, unless we're independently wealthy. Spoiler, almost no scientists are independently wealthy. No. It's the public right to be able to read any research that they've paid for. Mm. The fact that you cannot access it through a paywall is criminal. And it's a pretty sweet deal that the publishers have got going as well. In 2015... MPI, the Max Planck Institute, they published an open access white paper and they predict a revenue of 7.6 billion euros for all articles published in that year around the world. It comes out to about 4,000 odd euros per article and you could buy over 100,000 postdocs with that money or 10 LHCs. So at this point, you then have to ask, is the system worth saving? I'm going to go with no. The only reason I can see for wanting to keep journals that it currently exist is for access to the articles that they currently hold, because they were signed up and signed over under yes. those systems. Yeah. So those will obviously not just be released by the publishers out into the domain. No. Although they might already exist on Archive or in other places. Yeah, sure. But like, for instance, the. But then at the same time, like, if you go to. Jodrell, we have the physical copies. Yeah, like, and from... I, I won't deny there is a charm, a utility in having a physical copy. So, here's another little question for you, because obviously both the archive and overlay journals do have costs associated with them. How much do you think the archive costs to operate in a year? It's a fairly big website, isn't it? It's hosted, it hosts quite a lot of stuff. Yes. I have no idea about how much that costs. Yeah, though. I believe it's hosted at Cornell in the States. Okay, okay. Mm, couple of million? Yeah, a couple of million dollars. <laughs> yeah, in a year. Silent victory dance there from Josh. Yes, I hope that came through for you at home as well. Slight rustling. Yeah, yeah. so that comes to about $12 an article compared to 4,000 odd euros. And that's paid for by the universities that use it, right? So when I'm when I'm on the archive, I get a little thing in the corner saying access granted through the University of Manchester. Yes, and Thanks the for Science paying. Foundation, which does a lot for the archive. But I mean any anyone can access the archive there, right? You don't have to be affiliated yeah, to the university. As far as I understand it, the expectation is is that universities will provide a contribution towards the upkeep of the archive and that contribution is commensurate with the number of downloads they get from the university so the more that university uses it the more they pay where does that leave us then what i've hopefully convinced you at this point and well what this this astronomer at helsinki has convinced you is that the tools to change this system are in place the infrastructure is there and now it's just a question of getting people to adopt them to make this the new way of doing things. Because obviously a change like this isn't going to happen overnight. And one issue, particularly that I have as an early career researcher, is that 
having an article in Munras, having that name at the top of it, still carries a lot of weight. With your paper, can you get it published by Munras and then also verified by this open source journal? I don't believe so, no. I think the expectation is that you pick one journal to go with and publish. If mm. they reject your article out of hand, you could then go elsewhere. It's generally regarded as not cricket to submit to multiple journals simultaneously. So yeah, and I suppose it is also worth saying at this point that Munras is not a private publisher. It is the publishing arm of an established and distinguished astronomical society. So I'm sure that will survive going forwards in some form or another. And I mm. hope that it does. I, I hope that they do, but they do need to, they need to move on and evolve. Open publishing. I hope it becomes more of a thing. Moving on from open source papers to an open source sky that you can go and have a look at yourself. We're going to go now to Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky North. The Night Sky for March 2019. Well, as darkness falls, that lovely part of the heavens with the constellations of Orion and Taurus and Gemini is now setting towards the western horizon. Higher up is a yellow star called Capella, the brightest star in the constellation of Auriga. The Milky Way actually runs through Auriga and there's some nice open clusters, but you need a dark sky to see the Milky Way. Over to the lower left of Castrum Pollux in Gemini, it's a rather faint part of the sky. It's a constellation of Cancer, but there there's a very nice little open cluster called the Beehive Cluster, or Chrysope. And then, as the evening moves on, Leo the Lion, on its haunches, like in Trafalgar Square, is moving towards the south, with its bright star, Regulus, which actually lies almost along the ecliptic, so quite often planets can be quite close. A triple conjunction of Jupiter and Regulus, in the years when it was thought that Jesus might have been born, could have been the star of Bethlehem. And then rising over in the east is another bright star, Arcturus, at the bottom of the constellation of Bootes. And moving up towards the zenith, in fact, is the plough, part of the constellation of Ursa Major. Its two bright stars, Merak below and Dubai above, pointing up towards Polaris, very close to the North Celestial Pole. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter starts the month rising at about 2am and brightens from magnitude minus 2 to minus 2.3 as the month progresses, whilst its angular size increases slightly from 36.2 to 39.7 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises about 1am BST, so it will be higher in the sky before dawn. But sadly, it's heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic, and currently lies in the southern part of Ophiuchus, just above Scorpius. By the end of March, it will lie almost due south as the sun rises, but will only have an elevation of 14 degrees, so atmospheric dispersion will blur its image somewhat. The use of an atmospheric dispersion corrector, somewhat over 100 pounds, will help to give sharper images. Now Saturn. Shining at magnitude plus 0.6, rises two and a half hours before the sun at the start of the month, some two hours after Jupiter. Its disk is 16 arc seconds across, and its rings, which are still at 24 degrees to the line of sight, spanning some 35 arc seconds across. 
Sadly, again, Saturn now to the left of the teapot in Sagittarius is at the very lowest point of the ecliptic, and so will only have an elevation of about 10 degrees when due south before dawn in a month's time. So like Jupiter, an atmospheric dispersion corrector could help. Mercury has an angular size of 7.7 arc seconds at the start of March and reached its greatest elongation east on the 26th of February. Then it was 18 degrees away from the Sun. On the 1st of March, it set some one and a half hours after Sun, shining at magnitude plus 0.1. During the month, its angular size increases to 10.9 arc seconds, but its brightness rapidly reduces and by about March the 6th, at magnitude 2, it'll become very difficult to spot in the twilight. Binoculars could well be needed to reduce the background glare, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Mercury will pass between us and the sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on the 15th of the month. Mars. Though fading from plus 1.2 to plus 1.4 magnitudes during the month, remains prominent in the southwestern sky after sunset, at an elevation of about 37 degrees. It's moving northeastwards through Aries and passes into Taurus on the 23rd, 24th of the month. If only it could have been at this elevation when at closest approach last year. Its angular size falls from 5.3 down to 4.7 arc seconds during the month, so we'll not really be able to spot any details on its salmon pink surface. Finally, Venus. It begins March at a magnitude of minus 4.1, with its angular size reducing from 16 down to 13 arc seconds as it moves away from the Earth. However, at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, that's called its phase, increases from 72 to 81%, which is why the brightness only reduces from minus 4.1 down to minus 3.9 magnitudes. Venus rises about two hours before the sun at the beginning of the month and has an elevation of about seven degrees before dawn, but both reduce as the month progresses. We have nearly come to the end of its morning apparition as it moves towards superior conjunction, that's behind the sun, in August. It won't really be visible again, low in the southwestern sky, until the latter part of the year. Well, what about the highlights? There is actually one good one, and I'll say that to start with. At the very end of the month, on March the 29th, before dawn, Saturn will lie just above the moon. So, if clear, and let's just hope it is, and given a low horizon towards the south-southeast, one should spot Saturn lying close above the moon, which is just after third quarter. That would be a great photo opportunity. So, let's return to the beginning of the month. On the 1st of March, after sunset, a chance to spot Mercury. It's got to be clear, and you have to have a low western horizon, and binoculars might well be needed to reduce the sun's glare. But again, please don't use them until after the sun has set. So just looking west after sunset. On the 2nd of March, before dawn, looking southeast, a thin crescent moon will be seen lying between Venus and Saturn. And that would be a nice photographic opportunity as well. On the 12th of March, in the evening, a waxing moon 
approaches the Hyades and the Pleiades clusters, so looking high in the southwest during the early evening. On the 16th of March, just before dawn, Jupiter and Saturn will be seen to lie above the teapot of Sagittarius, as I show you on the chart on the night sky page. Just Google night sky jodrell. So if it's clear before dawn and given the low horizon just east of south, one should be able to see Jupiter lying up to the right of Saturn, both close to the teapot of Sagittarius. On the nights March the 26th to 31st in the early evening, we have a chance of seeing Mars approaching the Pleiades and Hyades open clusters in Taurus. So on the chart on the night sky page, I've shown the location of Mars below and down to the left of the Pleiades cluster on both the 26th, 29th and 31st of the month. And you'll see on the chart the Hyades cluster just lies over to the left. And finally, something on the moon. On the evenings of the 14th and the 28th of the month, the straight wall, or the Rupus Rector, lies close to the Terminator. To be honest, it's not really a wall at all, but a gentle scarp. As Sir Patrick Moore has said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. Well, a nice few things to spot during the month. I wish you well. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogasanu and Samuel Lesk with the night sky where you are. Planets are almost gone from the evening sky, but look up in the early hours of the morning and you'll see Jupiter and later on Saturn and Venus. The Tafiti, the Pleiades, are preparing for their journey to the underworld leaving behind a doppelganger, the Southern Pleiades. We will see M45 again at the end of June, when they will reappear in the morning sky as Matariki. The Milky Way arches across the sky, reaching zenith in the evening hours. There are some amazing binoculars objects there. Stay with us for our Southern Hemisphere night sky in March with Harry and Sam from the middle of the Middle Earth here in New Zealand. Kia ora from New Zealand. Hi everyone. Once again we are at Space Place at Cutter Observatory holding galactic conversations from the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere. With the music of the amazing Rian Sheehan in the background, our Wellingtonian star composer. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Samuel Liski. Just look up after sunset, pray that there is clear skies and you will see one of the most amazing night skies in the world. We've also been to a few star parties lately and had the opportunity to observe all night long these amazing features that set the sky of the southern hemisphere in a special place in our heart. Right now the galactic centre is slowly coming back into the picture but there are still amazing views in the Carina Southern Cross region and the large Magellanic Cloud. So to get your own star party going, we prepared some instructions for looking up in March. There is no decent planet inside in the evening sky, just Mars, and that is so close to the horizon that you can hardly distinguish it from the stars. And by 10 a.m. it's sunk into the underworld. So if you really want to see planets, you will have to stay up late. 
The brightest stars in the night sky are there in March, so if you'd like to know what those lights are, we will tell you all about it. March is the month when the day is equal to the night as we are observing the March equinox on Thursday 21st of March. Oh yes, it is indeed autumn here in Wellington and the days will become shorter than the nights after the equinox. At the beginning of the month, the sun sets around 8.30pm and earlier and earlier every day as we are heading towards the end of the month, when it will set around 7.40pm. At nightfall, half of our galaxy, the Milky Way, arches across the night sky from north to south like the arm of the octopus. Wellington and New Zealand have a legendary octopus they talk about, Te Feke o Muturangi. This octopus stole the bait and the fish hooks of Kupe, who lived in Hawaii. A chase across the Pacific Ocean followed, and New Zealand was rediscovered again as it was first found by Maui, according to the Polynesians. Kupe's wife, Hine Te Aparangi, saw a long cloud in the distance, a sight that land was near, and she named it Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. And cloudy it can get sometimes. And talking about Maori star lore, at the fringe of our Milky Way city of stars, on the northwestern horizon, the Pleiades, the Shining Ones, the Tafiti, are preparing for the journey to the underworld. They are to disappear shortly behind the sun and will stay there for a while. They will reappear in the morning sky in June after the longest night as Matariki, the Eye of the Ariki, star cluster that marks the Maori New Year. Maori have different names for the same stars at different times throughout the year and the Pleiades get to have three names throughout the year in different seasons. Also shining is Sirius and Canopus they reach the meridian almost at the same time, at the beginning of the month around 9.30pm. By the middle of the month the same stars reach meridian about 8.30pm and 7.30 by the end of the month. It is really impressive how fast they shift in the sky as the earth revolves around the sun and we can see this movement in just one month. To see them in the same spot we need to be looking two hours earlier at the end of the month compared to the beginning of the month. One is north of Zenit overhead and the other one south of Zenit. In the meantime, the Saturn cross will be at the 9 o'clock position on the South Celestial Circle. The Saturn cross is a circumpolar asterism. It never sets nor rises from this latitude, only gets washed away by the light from the Sun. High in the sky, Canopus marks the midpoint between the center of our galaxy and its edge. The brightest stars in the night sky are featuring from north to south. Aldebaran from Taurus, Castor and Pollux in Gemini, Canis Minor, Orion stars, Canis Major. These are north of overhead, then south of overhead, Canopus and Carina stars. The False Cross, the Diamond Cross and the Southern Cross. And last but not least, Alpha and Beta Centauri, the Pointer stars. Staying on the southwest part of the sky and halfway through, from the horizon is Akenar. Formalhaut is now gone grazing the southern horizon and it's on its way to the northern hemisphere. The large Magellanic cloud is high in the sky. So now for some binocular objects. From the horizon and travelling up the Milky Way, or sort of, we first come to M83, the great southern pinwheel galaxy, a large face-on spiral at a magnitude of 7.09. Nearby is the lovely Sombrero galaxy at 8.12 magnitude, 
Then a bit close to the Southern Cross is Centaurus A at 6.64, quite an easy one to spot. Very close to Centaurus A is the huge globular cluster Omega Centauri. And we can't look at Omega Centauri without also taking in the beautiful 47 Tucano, just by the small Magellanic Cloud. Magellanic Clouds are exceptional binocular objects. Magellanic Clouds are our neighbouring galaxies, circumpolar here in Wellington, and always a little elusive to direct sight. The Magellanic Clouds are the best training objects for averted vision. Always try to see them with the edge of the field of view of your eye, while pretending you're looking at something else. Good advice. The Beehive Cluster in Cancer is another amazing object, very bright, and we're lucky to share that with the Northern Hemisphere. Then, of course, there's M42 in Orion, which we also share with the Northern Hemispherians. And also reasonably high in the sky, well, high enough to see it okay, it's the Leo triplet, made up of M65, M66 and NGC 3628 galaxies. The majestic globular cluster of M3 is at 20 degrees above the horizon in the northern part of the sky. Also down in the lower part of the sky is the stunning black-eyed galaxy at 23 degrees above the horizon. And unfortunately, the Virgo cluster is only 15 degrees above the horizon, so not really worth looking at out of Wellington because we probably won't see it. But we know it's there. Mm. The bottom star, another one that we know is there, the bottom star of the Big Dipper, Al-Qaeda, grazes the northern horizon early in the morning, just before sunrise, precisely marking north, if we could only see it. But there is no chance, so same goes for the Whirlpool galaxy that gets nearly two degrees above the horizon. It'd be great to see them if we could. The morning sky is, however, popular with the planets. As Jupiter rises about 1am on the beginning of the month, and 11pm at the end of the month, followed by Saturn two hours later at 3am, and Venus at 4am. Jupiter and Saturn are flanking the centre of the Milky Way this time of the year. It'd be great to see them back in the sky again. Yay, we'll have to wait a few months. Yeah. If the galaxy stretches almost from north to south in the evening sky, in the morning it will almost have rotated to appear as if it's lined up from east to west with Jupiter and Saturn at the eastern end and Sirius setting in the west. As they prepare for their journey to the underworld at the fringe of our Milky Way city of stars, on the northwestern horizon the Pleiades, the Shining Ones, Cetaphiti, leave behind a doppelganger here in the Southern Hemisphere that look alike, fake twin, that never leaves the sky. Higher up than the Southern Cross, the Diamond Cross carries this mirror image of the Pleiades, called, unsurprisingly, the Southern Pleiades. Circumpolar to Wellington, the Diamond Cross can also be found by climbing up the Milky River. Two-thirds from the side and one-third from the centre, this is where you will find the optical asterism, pattern of stars, of the Diamond Cross. At the eastern end of it, a pair of binoculars will reveal the southern Pleiades, which at first sight look like a letter M to me. Theta Carinae Cluster, also called the Southern Pleiades, has an astronomical resemblance to the famed northern star cluster M45 in Taurus. Even though the cluster is not deeper shaped like the Pleiades, is also easily visible with the naked eye, but best in binoculars. Quite young, about 30 million years old, and at almost the same distance from Earth, 500 light years away. And just like M45, the southern Pleiades is 15 light years across. 
So there's your smorgasbord of amazing objects that you can see in the southern sky. We're lucky here in Wellington to be able to share many of the objects that are famous in the Northern Hemisphere as well. The benefit of not being too far south. We hope you get a chance to get out there and enjoy feasting on the sights of this night sky. If you're in Wellington, come up to Space Place, we'd love to show you around. So clear and dark skies from Space Place at Carter Observatory here in the Southern Hemisphere. And special thanks go to the amazing Rian Sheehan Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Haratina and Sam. And now, on to the feedback. We've got some feedback that Emma might actually like. We've got a post from Jonathan Shin on Facebook, uh, who says that he really enjoyed the interview with Katie Mack in the February podcast. Great insight into academic life and the frontiers being pushed. Yeah, thanks for the feedback. I really enjoyed doing that interview. I had a good old chat to Katie over Skype, so uh, I'm glad that that yeah, has been th- appreciated I by at least one person. At least one person, it was worth it. Yeah. yeah. I think the full un- the full raw audio of that is about 45 minutes long or something, isn't it? I did spend a w- quite a while chatting yeah. to, to Katie. So, um, uh... so I haven't had the chance to listen to the final product, unfortunately. That's something I must go back and do. That That's it for feedback currently. So if you've got any more feedback that you want to actually send us, because we like hearing from you, good or bad. So if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. At Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube, if that's how you choose to communicate with us, at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can always send us post. Our address is on the website. Postcards are great. So yeah, we haven't had any postcards recently. No, but they are they are adorning our walls and they our are. windows. We have so many. Yeah, when 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 you do send us a postcard or a pretty picture or just something, though, it does make it up onto the Jodcast walls. Yeah, and yes. we re- we read them all. So anyway, that's the end of the show this time. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to Joe Callingham for the interview. The editors were Beth Jones, Adam Averson, Hongming Tang, and Tom Scrag, and the producers were Michelle Christian Bezoidenhau and Naomi Asabe Frimpong. Until next time. John! John!